0: right. The spirit's up. We're here tonight. And that's enough. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Still hitting a little cl- too close to home. Like picture time is really stressful in our house. So I, I, I need to confess a few things to you. Um, some of them, some of you might know these things about me, but I, I need to just be straight with you. I, I, on my driving record, there are three speeding tickets. I got one when I was 16, one when I was 19, one when I was 22. When I was 25, I didn't speed ever, like five miles an hour under all the time. Just kidding, never mind. You think it's funny, I was late all three times, okay? I just even more late after that. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> in eighth grade spent a couple hours in the Edgewood City Jail with a couple friends. We were charged with criminal mischief of the third degree. I want to let you know kind of more of this confession. Um, The police picked me to question first because we were doing that thing in the holding cell that I'm sure you've seen in movies when they're like, nobody talk, nobody talk, all of us, we don't say a word. And they picked me first. I think they knew I was a talker. And they're like, tell us what happened. And I was like, well, Randy was born on 1987. Like everything I could think of, I was telling, like trying to get out of this any way I could. Um, I served, by my last count, I, I went back and checked. I don't know what I checked, but I pretended to check. Uh, I think I had detention 12 times in high school for talking too much. One of those times, though, was also for playing a game in computer class on the computer instead of doing work. I just remember that one very specifically. Um, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to be honest with you guys, like trying to tell you what's up. And um, there's the time where I, my hair was so long it could have been in a ponytail. Um, You laugh. I'd grow up back out right now if my wife wouldn't divorce me for it. Like, it was awesome. Um, I I think this might be the most important confession that I make to you today. There was a time when I popped my collar. It was like two weeks, and everyone else was doing it, but I soon realized how awful of an idea that was, and I stopped. Um, The most important confession, though, is that I spent most of my life as a fan of the UC Bearcats. Um, I have repented, and I am converted, so just, just know but here's the worst part of that confession. About the time they fired Bob Huggins, I was considering like who, who was I going to cheer for now, and uh, I, for a brief moment, considered rooting um, <clears throat> for the University of Louisville. I I did not. I did not. Like don't throw any tomatoes. Everything is fine. Everything's okay. So I have some real secrets and some real like dark stuff in my history that I'm obviously not going to share with you today. But I I tell you all of those things to say that I am not the only person in this room who has a story that starts something like, well, I don't tell many people, but... And and if we were to pass a microphone around the room, I I bet to a T every single one of you would have a story that kind of starts with your eyes on the ground and this like, I don't talk about this... Whether it's, it's a divorce that was a secret marriage that no one really knew about and, and you've moved on long since and no one has any idea about that part of your life. Whether, whether it was a trip to, to a clinic because you were at a party and you made a mistake and you didn't know what else to do. Whether it was, it was a secret that just was going to be between you and the other accountants and now it's years later but you still feel the guilt of the time that you cheated Maybe for you, that, that secret is a word that you said to your, to your spouse that you would give anything to take back or, or a glance that you stole in another direction. I have no doubt that, that if you're here today, that you have a secret and that you have a secret that makes you think, I wish I would stand on stage and think my deepest, darkest secret was that I almost rooted for Louisville. Because the secrets that you have And the secrets that I have, they're weighing us down. And they have been for a long time. For some of you, it's been a long, long time. And you've carried this guilt, and you've carried this shame, and you've carried this past with you since you can remember. But maybe for you, the secret isn't something that you did. Maybe for you, the secret is something that your family was involved in. Or something that that you know about and something that you saw, but something you don't really want to talk about. Well, I want to tell you this today, and this might be the most freeing thing you've ever heard, or maybe it's something that you finally just need to hear for the first time, but I I want you to hear this. I want you to know that every person, every family has a past. That there is no person in this room, there is no family represented in this room that doesn't say... Well, we don't like to talk about it, but. And there's no family in this room that doesn't have that secret, that doesn't have that relative that nobody mentions, that doesn't have that relative that everybody just kind of thinks, I wouldn't care to never see them again. Every every family has a past. And so for the last week and the next couple of weeks, we're talking about the most awkward family Christmas you could ever imagine. And the coolest part about this awkward family Christmas is that it's not your family and it's not my family. We're looking at the family that, that ends up being the family of, of Jesus here on earth. And when we're looking through their past and we're looking through their history and their story, and we start to discover that our family pales in comparison to the family line that Jesus comes from. If you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1 real quickly, we'll be in Joshua 2 most of the day, but if you've ever opened your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, you've started reading the family history of Jesus, and we stopped last week with this one in verse 3, where it says, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron. Last week, we stopped at that one, and we talked about the story of Judah and Tamar, and if you weren't here be thankful because, man, it's awkward. And so then we, after, after Hezron, Hezron's the father of Ram. Ram's the father of Aminadab. Aminadab's the father of, of Nashon. Nashon's the father of Salmon, which you guys can use that as a baby name if you want. And Salmon is the father of Boaz by Rahab. And you get to Rahab, and you have to pause. There's some interesting stories in between but there are very few stories like the story of Rahab. Rahab is a woman who lives in the city of Jericho. And we, all you need to know about Jericho is that it's a large city that's standing in between Israel, God's nation, and the promised land, the, the home that he has promised to them. Jericho is a large city, though, but we know this because it's one of the very first fortified cities in, in the world at the time, in the world. It was one of the first cities to build a, a wall, and they had a wall that was several meters high, and, then several, and it was very thick, and it was deemed by most historians to be the first impenetrable wall. It had several tall watchtowers going up, even higher than the wall, so they could look out in every direction. And not only that, but the city of Jericho was, was fertile enough that they could lock the gate of their city and not have to leave their city for up to two years. So if an attacker came, they can't climb the wall, they can't break through the wall, and they also have to keep rationing their food because eventually Jericho is just going to wait them out. And so Jericho is this city that's a tough place to get into. It's a tough place to get out of. But Jericho is also not a city of of people of God. It's a a pagan city. And because it's a pagan city, I, I take that back, because it's a place where normal people live, this is going to happen, and it happens in Jericho, that Jericho has a brothel, that Jericho has a place where a prostitute works, and that prostitute is named Rahab. Now, there are some Bible translations that you'll read because there's a large contingent of people who want to clean up the Bible, and they'll tell you that Rahab wasn't a prostitute. She was an innkeeper but I'm going to be very honest with you, there was some pretty specific language last week that let us know what Judah and Tamar were up to. That same specific language exists in the story of Rahab, okay? She wasn't just running a hotel, right? Like, I, I told my wife that it's kind of like people who would go to that hotel were the kind of people who say they just read Playboy for the articles, like, like those were the kind of people who were staying at Rahab's hotel. None of you are laughing because you're all like, that's all I did, I don't know what you're talking about. So, let's move on, because that was bad, and I shouldn't have said it. So, Jericho is a pagan town, and in this pagan town, they are in the way of Israel on their mission to the promised land. Here's the thing. Israel isn't just like a group of a couple hundred people. Israel is a group of, at this point, a country of three to four million people marching through the desert. And you don't just skirt around the outside of a town with three to four million people, and you don't just walk through town on a normal day. If you're bringing three to four million people anywhere you go, it looks like you're preparing for a war, no? So everywhere Israel went, the cities that they went through, the cities that they went around, thought they were coming for war. So Israel stops outside of Jericho, and they decide to send in some spies. So it says in Joshua chapter 2, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men from, how do you think we should pronounce the name of this town? I'm just going to say from that town because I don't want to get myself in trouble today. So Joshua, son of Nun, sent two people secretly from that town as spies saying, go and view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho said to Rahab, and said, sent to Rahab and said, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and had hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and had hidden them there with the stalks of flax she had laid in order for her roof. So the men come into town, and they're staying in this hotel, and they're staying there with Rahab. Maybe they're doing it covertly. Maybe they're doing it because they know who she is. I, I don't know the reason, but the spies are there in Jericho, and word gets out, the nation of Israel is coming, four million of them, they sent some spies. So the king sends, sends some, some soldiers in to get the spies. But instead, Rahab, for reasons we're not sure of, decides rather than turn them in, she decides to become a traitor. And she does the very first, uh, they went that way, sort of thing in life. And what's crazy about this story is the way the men are hiding and the way her roof would have been built, the men were hanging in the roof literally probably feet from where the soldiers were who were looking for them. But we find out very quickly why Rahab hides the soldiers. We find out very fast why she's willing to help the Israelites in this way. Because Rahab knows who she is. And Rahab knows what what she's done But Rahab also knows who they are. And so in the midst of everything else that's happening, Rahab comes to the men after the spies, or after the soldiers have left and as things calm down, and she asks them a question. And I think it might be a question that you probably have asked on more than one occasion. But basically what she says to these men is, I've heard about your God. I know who you are. And then she says, if he really is the one true God, will he care about me? And she asks these spies, your God He's the one who we've seen part the Red Sea. Your God's the one we've seen rain food down from the sky. Your God is the one who we've seen do all of these things. Will He care about me? Like, you guys know who I am, you know what I do. Is there a chance that your God cares about me? And she tells him, she says, "As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for your Lord and your God, and He is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now please swear to me by the Lord, as I have dealt kindly with you, that you will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and that you will deliver our lives." From death. And she comes up to these guys who know who she is, and she brings the baggage that she carries, and she comes to them, and she says, is there any chance that your God cares about me? Is there any chance that even though I am who I am, and I've done what I've done, even though I have a past, is there any chance your God cares about me And this is the truth that Rahab learns today. And it's the truth that I want you to know. And that truth is that God came to save us from our past. That not only does God care about us, but that God cares enough about us to save us from our past. And so maybe you are asking that same question. Maybe you, you shuddered just a tiny bit when we were going through some of those things that people have in their history, because it's a secret that only you know. Or maybe the whole time you were squirming, not because of what I was saying, but because you were thinking, please don't say mine, please don't say mine, please don't say mine. I don't want you to hear, I don't want you to know, I don't want you to know, please don't act like you know. And you were, you, and you were like just hurting inside. Or maybe you're asking that question because you've been here for a couple of years now, and you're surprised that the building hasn't yet fallen in on you. Like, like how has the lightning strike not come to me? You're the one that I want to know, that I want you to know that God saves you from your past. Because God does that very thing for Rahab. He saves her from her past. You see, the thing about Rahab is she grew up in a pagan nation. I mean, where she grew up, there was no one true God. There was no law of Israel. There was no scripture. There was no word of that God. There were many gods. There were many things. You could do whatever you want, go wherever you want, be whoever you want, because they just kind of did their own thing. And so it wasn't as if she knew better and could have done, could have done differently. Rahab was just, just doing what she knew how to do. She was just living the only life she had ever known. What's crazy about Rahab is that odds are, because of the way her house was built into the city wall, it kind of leads us to believe that she has more money than she's willing to admit, but rather than just make the money off of the hotel she's clearly running, rather than just live off the money she has, she's still trading sex for money in the act of prostitution, even though she doesn't have to. So in the midst of all of this, she comes to the people and she says, does your God care about me? Is your God willing to take a chance on me? Could he save me? Because she knows what's about to happen. Because word is out that when Israel marches through a city, that God leaves nothing in its wake. And so a couple chapters go by, and a couple couple weeks pass, And Israel gets awful close to Jericho. And as they get close in in, in Joshua chapter 6, God sends down some instructions. And these instructions go like this. He tells Joshua in chapter 6 verse 3, he says, "...you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do it for six days." So the plan that God outlines, the battle plan that God sends in to Israel to attack Jericho goes like this. Tomorrow morning, wake up and take a lap around the city. Go back to camp, do your thing. The next morning, wake up, take a lap around the city, go back to camp. The next morning, wake up, take a lap around your city. For six days, you're going to wake up. All of the men who can fight the war are just going to march around the city and then march back. And then God says on the seventh day, take everybody, march around the city seven times. And he says, on the seventh time, have the priests blow their trumpets. And when the priests blow their trumpets, have everybody shout. This sounds like a crazy war, right? Like, like, okay. And when that happens, the walls will crumble, And so the men obey because they've seen what God can do. And they start marching. And they march, and they march, and they march. And then they stop. And at the seventh time, when the priests have blown the trumpets, Joshua says to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live. Because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And so the men shout, the trumpets blow, and the entire city is destroyed except for one building right on the side of the wall. And inside of that building is a woman and her father and her mother and her brother and a few cousins and a few relatives And as the rest of the city is falling down around them, their house remains safe. As everything else is crumbling, the prostitute's house stays up. Because she was the one who was willing to say, God, in spite of my past, Will you still care about me? And because God is always partial to the ones who will ask, and because God is always willing to save the ones who believe that he can, the rest of the city is destroyed and the one house remains. Eventually, as Israel marches through, Rahab and her family just kind of meld into the pieces there. And they become a part of the nation of Israel. And Rahab, probably through some form of Israelite matchmaking, meets a man named Salmon and marries him. And has a son. Who has a son, who has a son, who has a son, who has a son, who has a son. Who who eventually has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named Joseph. And Joseph adopts into his family the baby carried by the woman he's engaged to be married to. And the baby is Jesus. And so there's no doubt that as as Joseph is in that moment, because Joseph has heard these stories, right? Joseph, several hundred, maybe a thousand or so years in the future, and when an angel comes to Joseph and says, your, your fiancé is about to bear a child, that child is going to be God in the flesh, there's no doubt that Joseph goes, uh, you know about my family, right? I mean, you know about my great-great-grandma and what she did for a living? You know that story? Like, I mean, there's no doubt that when, when the angel comes to Joseph and says, this is going to happen, at some point it had to run through Joseph's mind. Man, my family? My family has, has a past. My family has a story. But God chose Rahab's family on purpose. To remind us again and again that God saves us from our past. That God forgives our past. That God rescues us from our past. Do you know why he does that? He does that because all along his original intent was for us and he to live together forever. And so he created the Garden of Eden and it was there in the Garden of Eden that, that, that us and God walked in the same place, that we we're there in community, in relationship with each other. And us and God walked together. But in that story, God didn't want us to be forced to walk with him. So he gave us a choice. And Adam and Eve ultimately chose to walk away. And when they walked away, it created a divide between us. And it created a divide between us that now meant we couldn't walk with God like He intended, that we couldn't be in the place where God was, in the place where where there was no pain, in the place where there was only joy. And it didn't matter what we did. It didn't matter how hard we tried or how well we thought we could behave. It didn't matter how many rules we could follow. It wasn't possible for us to cross that divide. There was no length we could jump. There was no height we could reach. There was no rule we could follow that would get us there on our own because we had chosen sin. The worst part about this story is what happens in the middle is hell. And hell is a place where there's an eternal fire, where there's only torment, where there's only pain, where there's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is the place of misery But God decided, through the family of Tamar, through the family of Rahab, through the family of Joseph, to send his son. And he sent his son to live the first person who was capable of saying, I made no mistakes. I could walk across this divide if I wanted to. But instead, he put his son in the divide on a cross so that you and I, could again cross over into the place where we can be with God. Because as hell is the place that's full of torment and pain, heaven, the place where God is, is the place that is where there is no pain. The place where there is only joy. The plan of God to rescue us was that plan right there. The plan to show us how to follow him. And so how do you walk that bridge? How do you make it across? It's, it's, it's simple. The first thing you have to do is you have to believe. You have to believe that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. The second thing you have to do is let what Rahab did is she believed that God could save her, and then she repented. She turned away from who she was. In Acts chapter 3, it says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And then the third thing you need to do is is to be baptized. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it says to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So how can you be saved from your past? How can you end the divide and avoid a life of eternal pain and suffering? How can you say, my story's like Rahab, where I used to be, but now? How can you say, my family has a past, but God has saved me from the past? You can believe in who Jesus is. And you can say, Jesus, I turn from these ways and I symbolize it publicly by giving my life to you through baptism. I want to challenge you because maybe you've never made that decision for yourself. Maybe you've never said, I believe I'm going to turn around and I'm going to give my life to Jesus. I'm going to be baptized. Maybe that's something that you've never done. I want to challenge you. All I'm asking you to do is to agree to come on January 8th and sign up for our baptism class. There is no pressure. There is no obligation. There is free pizza. What more can you ask for? And come in for that for an hour and just talk to us about what it means to be baptized, about what it means to give your life to Jesus. Maybe if if you're hearing this for the first time, if you're hearing this and you're thinking about the baggage you bring and the pain that you bring, maybe it's time for you to start thinking about what it would mean for you to be baptized. I want to challenge you to, to... January 8th after church just for an hour or so from 11.30 to 12.30 to come and talk about what it would mean for you to give your life to Jesus. Maybe though this isn't news to you and you've seen the graphic before and you've seen the illustration, I want to challenge you that in these next few moments don't let that reminder roll off your back. Don't let yourself just say, yep, heard it before, I've been saved. Uh, As the men pass the communion here in just a moment, take that opportunity to think through that past that God has saved you from.